Christian Women's Conference. This is going to be happening. <coughs> Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 12, please. What does God want from us anyways? Whether you're new to Christianity or you're just window shopping, this is not an uncommon question. What does God want from us anyways? Most people think that they kind of have the ABCs of Christianity down. They get it. They understand. If you want to be a Christian, you stop saying four-letter words. You go to church, you pray before you eat, you give money away, you don't have sex outside of marriage, you help old ladies cross the street and carry their groceries, that sort of thing. But is that all there really is to Christianity? Is God just a moral supervisor standing there with his divine clipboard, making sure that you hit your quota of good deeds? And also that you make sure to avoid every kind of spiritual misstep docking you for every fall or fumble along the way? Does God care about what we think and what we feel as much as the things that we do? If you've come to think about God as nothing more than a rule giver and heaven and hell as his system of moral reinforcement, well, I think that you may not understand Christianity as well as you think you do. But I do understand how you might have come to see Christianity in that way. It's certainly the way that I saw it before I became a Christian. To be sure, Christianity and the Christian life does involve God telling you, stop doing that, and start doing this. And not just God, but other people, like your pastor and Christian friends in your life, stop doing that and start doing this. If we're honest, this Bible that we have, it's full of rules. According to the rabbinic tradition, in the first five books of the Bible alone, there are over 613 commandments. 365 prohibitions, that is, don't do that. And 248 positive commands, do do this. And then there's the Great Commission. This is New Covenant stuff. It's in the latter part of your Bible, where we think like rules kind of begin to fade away. And Jesus says that we are to go out and to teach the nations to obey all that he has commanded. So yes, Christianity is a religion in many ways about the rules, about the do's and the don'ts. But what if there's more? What if there's more? What if the way to obey the rules isn't to focus on the rules, but to focus on the one who gave them? What if there is a sort of master key to understanding how to obey all of God's commands faithfully? 
a single command, maybe two, that if obeyed, would kind of take care of obeying all the other commandments, however you might tally them up all in your Bibles. That would be, I think, the greatest commandment. Would it not? Well, that's the very theme of today's text that we will be exploring. And as we do, we're going to be entering into a conversation that's thousands of years old. The scribe that Jesus will be interacting with in today's text is part of a tradition that has wrestled with these same kinds of questions. Are some commands of God more important than others? And if so, it probably behooves us to figure out which one is the most important or which ones. This is the very question that the scribe asks Jesus in today's text. Jesus' answer, friends, may change everything about what you think you know about Christianity. Well, let's read it for ourselves. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Father, we pray that you would help us to be near your kingdom this morning as we seek to understand your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, we should remember where we are in the book of Mark. Jesus has had one encounter after another with the religious leaders. If you haven't been here for the book of Mark, the last chapter or two have been hot and heavy since Jesus got into Jerusalem. One encounter after another with the religious leaders, constantly trying to trick, trap, and deceive Jesus. But Jesus outsmarts them every step of the way. He's always two steps ahead of them. One of the Pharisees, who was a scribe by training apparently was present for one of these latter disputes, the text that we talked about last week. And apparently, he approved of the way that Jesus answered these religious leaders who were trying to challenge him. Verse 28 says that the scribes saw that Jesus, quote, answered them well. So, in response to that, the scribe says, well, he got one answer right. Let's see if he can do two. Let's see what this Jesus guy is really all about. I'm about to hit him with a question of all questions. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responds by reciting the Shema, which is from the Old Testament, which our sister Susan read for, for us, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this was recited daily, every single day, by all pious Jews. It was the earliest creedal statement in the church. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he doesn't stop there. 
he adds a verse from Leviticus. We think about Leviticus and we think about slaughtering lambs and goats and we think a lot about blood in the temple. But this command to love one another comes directly from the book of Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the Old Testament. And in one of the scarier parts of it. Jesus says that these are the two greatest commandments. And then the scribe does something interesting. If you've been paying attention, and if you were to just sit and read this through, it would really catch you off guard. The scribe agrees with Jesus. The scribe agrees with Jesus. In verse 28, the first time that the scribe agreed with him, it should have already taken you aback. Whenever Jesus communicates something with a religious leader, their response is not to agree with him, it's to argue with him and to trap him and to trick him, to hate him, to plot his death. They have colluded to kill him. They've said that he's in collusion with Satan. But they have not once in the book of Mark agreed with Jesus. But maybe this initial agreement Maybe it's just because they think that Jesus is kind of taking their side in a theological debate. If you were here last week, you remember that the text was all about the Sadducees and the power of the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus says, listen, you guys are wrong. There will be a resurrection. You don't believe that because you don't understand your Bibles. And the Pharisees were there, and they did believe in the resurrection. And this guy is a Pharisee. So maybe he agrees with Jesus because he thinks, ah, oh, this guy is conservative like me. He's on my side of the aisle. Maybe he just likes the sound of his echo in the chamber. But apparently, he's also satisfied with Jesus' answer to his second question about the greatest commandment. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And then Jesus responds to him after all of this by telling him in verse 34 at the very end, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This text is a pretty easy text to understand. I think you kind of just basically got the gist of it. Now we're going to jump into the points of the sermon. I have four points for you this morning. And then at the very end of the sermon, we're going to circle back around to this comment of Jesus where he tells the scribe that he's not far from the kingdom of God. We have four points this morning. The four points are love God, obey God, love your neighbor, and love God and love neighbor in word and deed. I'll say them again every time I come to one. Point number one, love God. Jesus says that the most important commandment, the rule above all rules, is to love God. Well, love him how? Love him partially. Love him on the weekend. Love him when you're around other people who call themselves Christians. Love him with your mind only or with your heart only. No, he qualifies this command. He says, we must love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Now, you could go about trying to understand what Jesus say, is saying here by opening up your Greek and Hebrew lexicons and getting into the nitty-gritty of, okay, well, what does this word in Greek and in Hebrew mean, you know, heart? Okay, how is that different from mind? And how is that different from soul? And 
Well, you could do that, or you could just recognize the totality of what Jesus is saying here. The all-encompassing nature of Jesus' command. The point here that Jesus really wants you to take away is not to distinguish between heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's, it's that every part of our being should be in love with God. Every part of who we are as a person, body, mind, soul, strength, psyche, whatever word you want to use, however you want to break it down, it should all be enraptured with the love of God. If you've ever been in love before, you, you kind of have a sense of what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe you can't explain it with words, but when you're in love, you know that every part of you, mind, body, soul, it's devoted to the other person. There's no aspect of your being that is untouched by your love for the other. You think about them. You do things physically with your body to serve them. Your money begins to go in different places in order to show your love to them. That's what Jesus says that we should feel about God. Which naturally leads us to a series of questions like, well, how can I feel that way towards God? Or, what if I don't feel this way about God? Well, let's begin by acknowledging the obvious. If you are not a Christian, you probably do not feel this way about God. It would not make any sense for you to feel this way about God. You see, Christianity is not a religion where you can just raise your hand and become an adherent, despite what you may have heard or seen or experienced in another church. You cannot just raise your hand or say some magic words or recite a scripture and become a Christian. It doesn't work like that. Christianity is a religion of conversion, but not mere external conversion. Christianity teaches that the God who made you must give you a new heart so that you can love him. Jesus described this phenomenon as being born again. The prophets talked about having a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. The Apostle Paul and Jesus talked about being given eyes to see. This is called regeneration. It's where God calls us out of the darkness and into the light. It's where God brings us to life, where he changes us inside out. It's where he gives us the ability to love him. I can tell you from my own life what that looked like. Spiritually, I went from hating God to loving Him. I went from rejecting Christ, mocking Christ, being utterly bored by Christ, to loving Christ, pursuing Christ, obeying Christ, and being enraptured by Christ. Mentally and emotionally, I went from angry and violent, constantly depressed, to, to gentle and joyful and kind and patient. It's called the fruits of the Spirit that God gives in our hearts. Even physically, people notice a difference in me. Sean, you look so happy now. Your posture's changed. You don't walk around with the same kind of aggression. My money began to be used in different ways. My, my body was used in different ways. Everything began to change. It was all-encompassing. But here's the thing. I didn't do that to myself. If you've never experienced this before, if you've never experienced conversion, regeneration, where God makes you new, 
I understand you may not be able to make sense of this. It's like trying to describe the blue sky to a blind person. But it's as if someone took the control center of my mind, will, and emotions and completely replaced it. Have you had that experience? You know, that's the scary thing about this command. If your heart has not been changed by God, you cannot obey it. But friends, God is the God who can give a new heart. He is the God who can change our hearts. And it's his delight to do that. Don't you want that? Even now, maybe you realize that he's been calling you. And he's been pulling you towards him. And he's been teaching you that everything that you've loved so far is not worthy of his love. It's not worthy of your love, excuse me. And he's been trying to show you himself and how, how loving he is and how much you should love him. If you have been feeling that way, even now, even today, pray and ask God to give you a heart that's capable of loving. If you have any questions about that, I'd encourage you to come up to me or really anyone in this church afterwards, and we can talk about it. To the Christians. If you're a Christian, this sort of command might lead you to wrestle with feelings of guilt. If you're anything like me, you fail to love God this way consistently. We've prayed and confessed that fact together this morning. Sometimes you may feel like God is your everything. Heart, mind, will, emotion, everything. God, every part of you is just enraptured with the love of God. Now, always and forever, you might feel that way. But other times you may feel like your love for Him is beginning to flake away like old paint. I want you to know that that's a common experience. It's not, it's not just because you're a bad Christian. You see, even with new hearts, which are given life by God himself, we still live in a body of death. The thing that allows us to love God, our heart, still lives in a body that has been tainted by sin. In Romans 7, Paul says that there is another law at work in our bodies, warring against the law of our minds and holding us captive to the law of sin that dwells within us. And so even as redeemed men and women... We live as fallen creatures in a fallen body, in a fallen world. So then what advantage do we even have with our new hearts? I mean, if it's hard for me to love God because I live in this fallen world with a fallen body, and my neighbor lives in the same fallen world, and he seems like he's struggling to follow God and to love God, what advantage do we have? Well, in another section of Romans, Paul tells us what advantage we have. He says... We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And that's the difference between us, friends. Jesus Christ has given us the ability to put sin to death. The Holy Spirit that lives in us compels us to fight addiction. It compels us to love God, to pursue God, and to turn away from the things of this world. 
It is leading us into all righteousness. Even in the midst of the chaos. Our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, they can't love God because their love mechanism is broken. Their heart is dead. It's stony. It's incapable of loving God because it doesn't work. But our new hearts, even if they misfire because of the body of sin that they're contained in, they are still actually capable of loving God. And the spirit that lives within us drives us onward towards love. But we have to fight for it. We have got to fight for it. Loving God with all of your being isn't something that just happens. It's not something that you just are naturally inclined to do. Spiritual laziness and loving God the way that He calls us to love Him do not go hand in hand. We can't just go about our lives assuming that loving God is something that will come easy to us, even with our new hearts. I mean, think about your own Christian experience. Think about how hard it has been to love God the way that He calls you to love Him. Why would you think that you can let off of the gas? Why would you think that it will just happen? You know that it won't. It's been your experience. I would recommend, brothers and sisters, that you think about your heart like a wood-burning stove. Some of the younger people in here may not even know what a wood-burning stove is. If you don't, ask somebody who's slightly older than you when we're done. Think about your love for God as the heat coming off of the stove due to the flames. If you want to maintain good heat, you have got to keep the fire strong. And in order to do that, you have to do a bunch of different things. You have to feed it the right fuel. You have to give wood that is good and dead and dry. If you feed it wet leaves and green wood, it will just smoke out the cabin and the fire will begin to die out. In the same way, if you want to love Jesus as he has commanded you to, we need to make sure that we're keeping the fires of our hearts stoked well. Not putting wet leaves and green wood in there. You know what that is. Waste of time on entertainment that doesn't lead us to think about Christ and other good things, but that leads us into the path of sin. Friends who are not believers, who are not encouraging us to fight sin and to put it to death in our life, but rather are leading us deeper down into the pit of despair. If you've ever built a fire before, you know that it takes a lot of work to maintain it. You know it's an ongoing task. You, you move the logs around. You shove more wood in. You open and close the ventilation, the flue, if you will, in order to keep the fire roaring. It's an ongoing process. And that's what it's like for us as we try to love God well. It's an ongoing process. So have the fires of the affection for God died out in your heart recently? If so, why do you think that is? Maybe God has you in a dark season in His providence. That's certainly possible. It's also possible that you're feeding your heart wet leaves and green wood. 
Have you been spending substantially more time on Facebook than in God's Word? Or ESPN, or in the gym, or whatever it is that you do? Have you been praying? Have you been gathering with God's people, taking advantage of the means of grace that God has put in your life to encourage you to love Him and to serve Him well? You know, more often than not, when I find that my affections for God and subsequently my obedience to God begin to wane, it's because I'm, I'm not feeding my heart well. I'm not stoking the fires of my heart in order to see affection for God. The same is true with most people that I talk to when I see that their affections are dying. Now. Ah, I'm just really in a spiritual funk. I'm in a lull. I just don't feel close to God. Well, friends, what are you doing to stay close to God? Are you in His Word? I, don't, I just don't feel like reading. Well, maybe your wife can read to you or your husband can read to you. Are you coming here and gathering with the people of God who love you and who will encourage you and challenge you and rebuke you and take you out to breakfast or lunch or dinner and spend time with you, help you out financially? I mean, are you in a spiritual funk because you want to be there? All of this leads to the question of obedience, which takes us to point number two. Obey God. You see, all of this talk about affections, all this talk about love, it is more important for obedience than you know. The reason why is, as human beings, we only and always do what we want to do. We never do anything that we don't want to say it again. As human beings, we always do that which we want to do. We never do anything that we don't want to do. I'm seeing some eyes moving, some brains processing. People are thinking, well, actually, Sean, I do things that I don't want to do all the time. I ate a kale salad last night. It was terrible. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. I have to get up at 5.15 to go to work. Don't want to do it, but I do it. Going to work in general. Don't want to do it, but I do it. But if you look at each of these examples, or any example really, just a little more carefully, you'll see that you actually did obey your desires. You may have just missed the fact that you have competing desires. You can just take the example of the kale salad, for example. Your initial desire is that you don't want to you know, eat this kale because it tastes like kale. But you eat it because you have a deeper desire to be healthy or to be lean. Going to work, waking up at 5.15 in the morning, when the alarm clock slams you into reality, or now with the new iPhones and the gentle, you know, gentle tweets, as it gently coerces you to wake up, maybe four or five times. You say, I don't want to get up. I don't want, yes, that's a superficial feeling that you have. But you have another desire that's deeper than that desire. The desire to put food on the table, to pay the rent, to bring money into the house, to pay the bills. And that desire wins out over your desire to stay asleep most of the time. 
your greatest desires always win. And you never disobey your deepest desires. You always do that which you most want to do. That's how all of life works. And when you understand, when you begin to understand, and then really comprehend the fact that all of our life is rooted in our affections and desires, then you can begin to understand Christian obedience. Then you can begin to understand Christian obedience. Does Christianity have rules, laws, commandments? Yes. Does God expect us to obey His rules, laws, and commandments? Yes. But the way to do that is not to focus on the rules entirely, but to focus on God. To stoke the flames of your affections for God himself. And ironically, the more that we bite down on our mouthpiece and go in swinging, trying to obey every last rule, the less obedient we end up becoming. And this is the reason why love the Lord your God with all your heart is the greatest commandment. Because if you focus on loving God, on stoking your affections for him, you won't have to make yourself obey the rules. You'll want to obey the rules. You'll say, Lord, I love you. I love you. And then your obedience will begin to flow out of your love for God. You know, I've never seen a young man in love who, who felt like he was being made to drive five hours and go be with his, his love. It was a joy for him to drive across five different states to get to his wife. Why? Because he loved her. This is not our perfectly consistent experience as Christians, but it is the root of our experience. This concept is at the root of Augustine's famous saying. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. Now, Augustine didn't mean just say that you love God and then live however you want. Go off and live in sin. He meant if you love God, if you truly love God, then what He wants will become what you want. And then you'll do what you want, but the things that you want will be what God wants. Love God and do what you want. Your affections and your desires will be changed by the object of your love. Parents, you kind of experience just a little, like a microcosm of this all the time. Long day at the office, want to sit down on the couch, don't really feel like going anywhere or doing anything. Your kids say, Daddy, I want to go to the park, or I want to play do tea, or cowboys and Indians. And you get up and you go and you do it. Because you love them. Their desires become your desires because of your love for them. When the scribe responds to Jesus in verse 33, he says, To love the Lord is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It's from 1 Samuel. The story that this quote comes from is the story of Saul, Israel's first king. In that story... God told Saul not to take any, anything from the people that he conquered. Saul obviously went and took things. But he thought he could make up for it, for his lack of obedience, by offering them up as sacrifices. He, he kept the best animals, in fact, to offer up as sacrifices. And this is what the Lord says to Saul in response. 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What the Lord wants is obedience. But he only wants obedience from the heart. True obedience, the kind that is pleasing to God, can only come when we love God. The book of 1 John connects love and obedience like this. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You see the same thing quoted verbatim in 2 John as well. So do you remember the beginning of the sermon where I talked about the 600 and some odd commands in the first five books of the Bible alone? And How could anyone ever hope to do all the things that God wants them to do or to not do all the things that God doesn't want them to do? Well, you, you just really don't have to think about it like that. You need to focus on loving God, and as you do, you will find yourself growing in obedience to His commands. One of the ways that you'll grow in, in obedience will be when your love for God begins to express itself in love for God's Word. That's one of the marks that you can know that you're actually a Christian. That the Bible isn't something that you merely tolerate on a Sunday morning or something that you ignore six days out of the week, but it's something that you begin to love and to long for and to want to study and understand because that's what God has revealed himself. Pretty soon when an issue comes up in your life because you love God and want to be faithful to him, you'll say, what does God want me to do here? Finances? What does God say about this? Let me look in his word. Marriage? What does God have to say about this? Let me look in his word. Sex? What does God have to say? Entertainment? Education? You see, it's not that you'll never have to think about the commandments. But loving God changes the way that you think about the commandments. Rather than saying, do I have to do this? Or, man, I can't do that. You'll say, what does my Lord want from me? How can I serve my love? How can I serve him well? Point number three, love your neighbor. This dynamic of loving God and loving him well will not only affect your relationship with God, but it will also affect your relationship with your neighbor. And by neighbor, I don't mean the person who lives close in physical proximity to you. I mean, anyone and everyone. The Jews in the Old Testament thought that their neighbors were only Israel. But Jesus came along in the parable of the Good Samaritan and it totally exploded that and showed that all along God intended neighbor to be everyone who was around. Your co-workers, your spouse is your neighbor, your children are your neighbors, the members of this church are your neighbors. What you'll find, the more that you love God, is that you'll begin to love people differently. And it's because all of a sudden you're not at the center of your universe anymore. But not only that, you're not even in second place. All of a sudden, rather than thinking about yourself as the most important person in the room, or the most important person in the world, you begin to think about other people. It's a weird phenomenon. Now, instead of treating your wants as supreme, you find how you can care for other people. And you begin to prioritize your time, your talent, and your treasure accordingly. What you receive vertically begins to go out horizontally. 
as one commentator said, love for God releases the love of God. But again, a heart that isn't regenerate is simply not capable of loving people like this. I'm not saying that it's not capable of doing nice things. I mean really loving people. If you find yourself holding on to hate, if you find yourself unable to love, if you find that you're incapable of forgiveness, if you find that you can't be kind to your neighbor, it is quite possible that you have not been born again. 1 John 4, 7 says, Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. He states it positively, but in case you didn't understand, he states it negatively right after that. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's not complicated. This is an hour-long sermon on something that is really not complicated. You can't give people what you don't have. You, you can't get juice out of a dry beef. It reminds me of when people talk about, you know, staying out of debt. And they're just wrestling with so many different questions and issues. And I say, well, do you have any money? And they say, no. And I say, well, there you go. You can't spend it. But what about a credit card? Wait, do you have the money? No, I don't. Well, then you can't spend it. In the same way, when we think about loving our neighbor, it's not that complicated. We can't give love out that we don't have ourselves. In another place... John says, we love because he first loved us. And this, my friends, is the sum of the Christian religion. God, who loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we didn't deserve to be loved, even when we hated God, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, demonstrating the ultimate act of love. And if we have been loved with such a powerful love, well, then we will love other people well. But what does this look like in the real world? I mean, anybody can say that they love God and love their neighbor. It's not hard, especially when you have a malformed understanding of love. When your understanding of love has been shaped more by the culture and by pagan religions than by God and his word. As a matter of fact, this verse that we're studying this morning, these commands, love God and love your neighbor, are often cited by people who want to disobey Jesus in almost every other area of their life. They say, well, I'm loving God and loving people. I'm okay. I can go ahead and do X, Y, and Z. So we can't just say we need to love. We actually need to know what love looks like. And that takes us to point number four. Love God, love neighbor, and do so through word and deed. Word and deed. There are two ways that you can love God and love your neighbor. Word and deed. Truth and action. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy is how overeducated seminarians might say it. These two concepts are often pitted against each other. But they don't have to be. They're certainly not in opposition in the book of Mark. As we've been walking through chapter by chapter, especially in the early chapters, you saw that wherever Jesus went, the first thing that he did was preach the gospel. He communicated truth. And then he adorned the gospel. 
He decorated it. He made it look glorious and amazing by loving people and caring for them. Calling people to repent of sin and then showing them what a sinless life looked like. You know, we tend to think about word and deed in weird ways, especially men. Men often think that their deeds show their wives their love, and so they don't have to communicate it. You know, the wife says, honey, I wish you told me you love me a little more. And the husband's like, I just fixed the dishwasher. I can't say it any louder. And the wife says, well, I mean, I just I want to hear it verbally. On the other hand, some of us say that we love, but our actions may not necessarily line up with our words. We use the word love to overcompensate with the fact that our actions are actually more hateful than loving. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, well, why don't you act like it? Whether we're loving God or loving our neighbor, we have to communicate love, and we have to do it with our lives as well. And part of that means that we have to tell people the truth about themselves. This is love. One of the reasons that a lot of people don't like me initially is because I'm brash, and uh, I kind of, kind of blurt out the truth, maybe not being as gentle as I could be. That pushes people away initially, but eventually they come back around because people find that they appreciate being told the truth. But not always. Sometimes when we tell people that we love them, and then we communicate truth to them about their lost state, they may not feel like we're being very loving and kind to them. But that doesn't mean that we can't, or that we shouldn't love them like that. We have got to communicate the gospel to people who are lost and dying in their sins. We cannot merely help them out financially. You know, I know of a church that just paid off $10 million of medical debt in the surrounding area outside of their church. And that is fantastic. But that same church did not do much in the way of evangelism. And you know what? Although I'm sure that people appreciate having that debt off of their backs, on Judgment Day, however much debt they had, it will seem very light in comparison to the sin debt that they owe God. But we can't just preach the gospel and preach it alone. We can't just tell people hard truths and then not do anything to show people that we love them with our lives. One of the examples is with Spencer and Amber, the life of this church. The first time that I talked with Spencer and Amber, I told them that I loved them very much and that I'd be praying for them. And then a month later, they were living in our home because I wanted to show them that we loved them. James says it like this, so also faith rooted in love. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In the same way, if we claim to love people, but we never actually do anything, if we never count the cost, if we never sacrifice any of our time, talent, or treasure to serve people, we're paying lip service to what love is. We're not actually loving anyone. Earlier, I told you that every member of this church is your neighbor. And Jesus commands you to love them as you would love yourself. In the life of this church, you can't just say that you love people, but then never show up. It doesn't work like that. If you love your wife, but you don't ever want to spend time with her, do you really love her? Jesus says that the church is his bride, and that he loves her with a great love. He died for her. 
But my question is, and this is just an echo from Sunday school, do you love the bride of Christ as much as Jesus does? Do you love his bride? If somebody came up to me and said that they really enjoyed me and that they wanted to spend time with me and they wanted to have the pleasure of my company, but they wished that Amber wouldn't come along because they didn't really like her very much, we couldn't be friends. If you love me, you love my wife because my wife and I are one. You cannot say that you love Jesus and not love his bride. But you can't just say that you love his bride. You actually have to show it with your life. You have to orient things in your life around the church. You have to make time to be here with the people that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus loved every Christian in this room so much that he died for them. He gave up his life for them. God the Father loved every Christian in this room so much that he killed his son to purchase them to himself. And you, can you make time to spend time with them, to love them, to care for them, to re rebuke them, exhort them, challenge them? If you're a member of this church, you've signed a covenant where you have agreed to love this church. And here are some of the things that you've agreed to. Love us by maintaining unity. Love us by putting away gossip and injurious speech. Love us by rebuking, encouraging, exhorting, and challenging one another. Love us by gathering with us. Love us by praying for us. Love us by helping us raise our children in godliness. Because it really does take a community, especially a God-believing community, a gospel-saturated community, to raise a child. To love us by rejoicing with us. To love us by bearing with our burdens when we weep. To love us by supporting the gospel ministry of this church financially and more. So how's that going? Are you all in? Are you loving the bride of Christ like Jesus or are you just maybe kind of have one foot in and one foot out? This is a small church. We're getting bigger by God's grace. But it's pretty easy to love the amount of people we have right now. If you're sort of halfway loving the church, I want to ask you a question. And this ties it back to the text. Is that how you want to be loved? Do you kind of want to be halfway loved? Do you want to have people be kind of partly committed to you, but be a little bit flaky? Jesus says that we must love our neighbors like ourselves. So how are you loving the people in your life? How are you loving your wife, your husband, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you loving them with a flaky love, with a worldly love, with an idolatrous love, or with the love of Jesus Christ himself? This is the beauty of this command. It completely streamlines obedience, especially as we love other people. All you have to do is ask yourself this question. How should I treat this person or that person, my wife or my kids, my fellow church member? Well, all I have to do is say, well, how would I want to be treated? In evangelism, think about this. If you were not a Christian, as a matter of fact, many of us were one, one day lost. We were lost. Weren't we so glad that somebody came and shared the gospel with us? Weren't we so glad that somebody gave us that book or invited us to church or told us the truth about ourselves even when it hurt? Because look where we are now. We're saved. If you've been loved like that, don't you think that somebody else might want that kind of love? 
If you were struggling financially, wouldn't you want a little help to get back on your feet? If you were sick, wouldn't you want someone to bring you soup or to pray for you? If you got a new job, wouldn't you want your family to come and rejoice with you? If you lost another baby, wouldn't you want people to grieve with you? This isn't foolproof. Your understanding of love may be badly broken. And what you think is love may not be love at all. But the more you walk with God, and the more that you let Him change your understanding of what love is, the more profound this understanding of love will be for you, and the better you'll be able to love other people. So, do you remember early, very early on in the sermon where I told you that I was going to come back to the part where Jesus told the scribe that he wasn't far off from the kingdom of God? I know it feels like a million years ago. Well, here we are. Why do you think that this scribe, this scribe in particular, wasn't far off from the kingdom of God as Jesus tells him? I think there are four reasons. Number one, he understood the love of God. Number two, he understood what it meant to love your neighbor. Number three, he understood God's word. He quotes God's word back to Jesus. He shows, yes, I understand God's word. The Pharisees didn't understand, understand God's word, and therefore they didn't understand the, excuse me, the, the scribes, the Sadducees, didn't understand God's word. So they didn't understand the power of God, so they didn't believe in resurrection, so they were far away from the kingdom of God. This scribe does understand God's word. And then number four, he's willing to receive Jesus' teaching. He's willing to receive Jesus' teaching. So what about you? Are you willing to receive what Jesus says to you? About every area of your life, about your entire being? Well, if so, then you are nearer to the kingdom of God than you know. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this sermon would not just be a blip on the radar of our souls. We pray that you would help us to walk away from here encouraged and challenged to focus on loving you better with each passing day. We pray that you give us grace for when we fail. And we know that that grace is secured for us by your son, Jesus Christ. And we, together, we rejoice looking forward to the day when we will see you face to face and our love will be perfectly pure. And we ask that you would give us strength to make it to that day. In your son's name we pray.